Jalofa Lava. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to the session podcast, Ready or Not, from our 2018 programme. In his book, Island Time, Damon Salesa argues that while New Zealand has passively allowed a tacit segregation to take hold between Pākehā and Pacifica, the future of this country is Pacific, whether we are ready or not. Setting a course through the islands of Pacific life in New Zealand, Otara, Tokoroa, Oamaru and beyond, Salesa envisions a country becoming even more Pacific by the hour and challenges us in this year's Michael King lecture to embrace our Pacific talent and finally act like a Pacific nation. We hope you enjoy it. Kia ora tato, maroli, fiu mai, maroli mama. Thank you everyone and thank you for coming to share this afternoon with me. And I wanted to start really by acknowledging Michael King. I didn't know Michael King very well, but I did actually meet him one time, and he told a joke. <laughs> and I thought it was quite funny, so I'm going to tell it again. And it's very literary, so others here might find it amusing. But he told a joke at Kendrick Smitherman's funeral, which is, it was a funeral service. And he said that he'd gone to meet Kendrick Smitherman at a party one time, but he'd never seen a picture or met him before. Kendrick Smitherman's a New Zealand poet. And so he asked Sir Keith Sinclair, um, which one is Kendrick Smitherman. How will I know which one is him? And Sir Keith Sinclair said to him, look for the poet, um, look for the person that looks like an Armenian grocer. <laughs> I don't know what that looks like, but I think it's funny. <laughs> now, Michael King was an important historical figure in New Zealand, chiefly for his work in explaining, first of all, Māori to Pākehā through his book Te Puya, his book on the history of Māori, and particularly through his documentary series, um, Tangata Whenua. But then his second career was essentially the reverse, <laughs> which was to explain Pākehā to Māori and Pākehā to themselves. And I think that's the work that kept him going in his later years and that brought him um, really into the relevance of our contemporary world. I think it's fair to say he always had a deep interest in the Pacific, but he had some way to go, as we all do, in how thinking about how the Pacific works in New Zealand's world. But I think he'd come far enough. He was actually born in 1945 at the end of the Second World War, and works like his were part of the key works for decolonizing New Zealand. He was born into a deeply colonial world, a world where New Zealand was the formal colonial power in four Pacific nations. And when he passed away, he passed away um, with an Auckland that was essentially a Pacific city. So we think of him here, his work, and the ongoing work of explaining New Zealanders to themselves. I end my book with this Samoan proverb. Le ua na mai manua. The rain came from Manua. Now, Manua is the far eastern um, set of islands in, the, in Samoa. It's part of American Samoa, but even lots of American Samoans have never been there. It's actually, by some measures, quite a distant place, but it's a very sacred place in Samoa. Essentially, this is a way Samoans have of saying, you should have seen it coming. Right? <laughs> the rain came from a long, long way away. <laughs> Why were you not prepared? 
And that's kind of my theme for today. (laughs) The rain came from manure. And because my uncle, (laughs) my father's younger brother, is actually a mayor, a polinu'u in manua, I wanted to start with him because, hey, why not? It's a real place, real people, as well as a place where the rain comes from. Now, in New Zealand, we know that we're getting old, right? The median age uh, for Pacific, uh, for New Zealanders is nearly 40, right? But if we look up to the Pacific, we actually see these very young, very dynamic nations. Right. And if we think about the Pacific people that live here in New Zealand, we see a similar story. You know, while the median age in 2006 was nearly 36 for New Zealand as a whole, for Māori it was 22, and for Pacific people it was 21. But for the Pacific people who were born in New Zealand, people like me, it was 13. So we have in our midst this radical difference. We have young brown people and a group of old people who don't look a lot like them. If we look at how many people were born last year and where they trace their ancestry to, this is the whole of New Zealand, we see a similar story. While Pākehā are still producing babies, they're only just producing half of New Zealand's babies. Right. And in Auckland, the story is even more powerfully different. Of the last, of every 100 babies born in Auckland, 52 were Pākehā, but 28 were Pacific. 26 were Asian, 20 were Māori, right? You'll realize that doesn't add up to 100. (laughs) And that's because in our beautiful world, babies are not just ticking one of these boxes, right? So the fastest growing group there are the babies who are ticking both Pacific and Māori. Um, And a lot of them are coming through one particular place, and that's a hospital in South Auckland and County's Monaco Health, which is why many of us have a very special kind of connection with that, the county's Monaco District Health Board. Now, for me, there's another picture that sort of captures this. This is data, but there's a story here. And the story is probably captured in this, right? As New Zealand ages, the literal caregivers for old Pākehā are going to be Māori, Pacific, and Asian. And as our country moves on, the caretakers of our nation will be disproportionately Māori, Pacific, and Asian, right? And that's a great story, right? That's a story of a diverse New Zealand, a changing New Zealand. So far, so good. But diversity is not just innocent. It's not just innocent miscellany, as some scholars have said, right? So we tell ourselves stories about this diversity. And the current kind of fairy tale Aucklanders tell themselves is that they are super diverse. But if we actually look at Aucklanders' lives and the things that Aucklanders do, the schools they go to, the neighbourhoods they live in, the shopping centres they shop at, they're not nearly as diverse as we imagine. In fact, Aucklanders live in incredibly segregated ways. Now, I put two chapters in a book to sort of make this incontrovertible to the Aucklanders who somehow don't realise this, but I suspect... It's pretty obvious to every Aucklander. If I ask you, um, 
what's the majority ethnicity, for instance, of Takapuna, and what's the majority ethnicity of Otara? Is there really anyone in Auckland who doesn't know the answer to that question? Right. So we can have numbers because they tell us certain kinds of truths. There are 477 neighbourhoods um, that are predominantly Pacific. Now, you need a, something to put that up against. So, for instance, there are only 61 neighbourhoods in the whole of Auckland that are predominantly Asian. And there are 100,000 more Asians. Right. What are the odds that a Pacific person in Auckland has a Pākehā person living in their neighbourhood? About one-third. So two-thirds of Pacific people do not have a Pākehā person living in their neighbourhood. Right. And I won't name the schools, um, but for instance, I found a school with no Pacific students, and I found another school that was almost 99% Māori and Pacific, and there's only 16 kilometres separating them. Right. And if we remember New Zealand in, say, 1981, when we looked at schools like that, we had a particular name for those schools. <laughs> right. So the way I phrase this is not that we live in a super diverse city and not that Auckland is um, the largest Polynesian city in the world, but actually that most Aucklanders live next door to the world's largest Polynesian city. Right. And in Auckland as a whole, to give you scale, right, we know that the second most spoken language in this city is Samoan. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I can guarantee you there's many places in Auckland where you will not see any Samoan spoken. Right. So when I reflect on the diversity that confronts us in Auckland, I think about, and New Zealand, I think about what makes New Zealand different. What is our specialness? Where does it come from? And I've been overseas and I've seen, for instance, New Zealanders gather in London, and even though they might be half-loaded and out on the streets for Anzac pub crawl, they reflect on this too. And they realise that a lot of what makes New Zealand distinctive, the New Zealand difference, is te tiriti and Māori and the Pacific. Right. That is two of the most defining special characteristics of New Zealand. And I guess for the rest of my talk, I want us to reflect on, you know, I mean, I take that as a given that those are two defining characteristics, but I want us to ask that question. So if that's true, how have we acted differently to recognise and protect that specialness? Or to put it another way, have our leaders seen the rain coming? Because it's pouring, right? We're all wet. They should have seen it coming, right? And Lots of my mates are tired of this one. But for instance, if I take a random group of Aucklanders, <laughs> and I reflect on those Aucklanders and I say, well, they come in all shapes. Well, they come in all sizes and shades. <laughs> and they do kind of come in shades because there's one hooker <laughs> who represents Pākehā Auckland at the moment. Um, there's, this is old, so there's Ihaia West from his size to Patrick Tuipulotu. And I think this is the Auckland I inhabit, right? Except the Auckland I inhabit also has lots of women in it <laughs> who run it. <laughs> um, but this is the Auckland I inhabit, right? 
So what do their leaders look like? Let's imagine. <laughs> so just to help us imagine it concretely, they look like this. Can anyone here spot the difference? <laughs> right. Now, do I think these leaders, who I'm sure are fine leaders, although the record of the Blues in the last five years doesn't suggest that, we might suggest that they haven't seen the rain coming. They've been getting wet and they don't know where the rain has come from. And we might do that not to think I'm just, so I'm not just picking on the Auckland Blues because I love the Blues and I'll be watching them tonight, but not in the rain. Um, you know, we can pick another group of leaders. Our most important ministry in many ways for many New Zealanders, the Ministry of Social Development. And they might be the answer to what is wider than the Auckland Blues board. <laughs> right. And we could find the story as we go on and on through, you know, through all of our agencies and our leadership. And in fact, we find in New Zealand there's one place which doesn't look at all like this. And it's the New Zealand's cabinet. As we breathe and live, and I should acknowledge the cabinet minister who's here tonight, um, who is one of them, there are 13 Polynesians in the New Zealand cabinet. It is the most diverse cabinet. Yes. That speaks to me and it says the New Zealand public knows something that our organisations have yet to learn. Right. They have produced a diversity, and that includes, at least with regard to Pacific Auckland Council, has produced a diversity in governance we don't have at almost any other level. Right. The Deputy Prime Minister, the third ranked person are Māori. Um, there are four Pacific Cabinet Ministers, or four Pacific Ministers. So I have to acknowledge that Cabinet Minister because I'm married to her. <laughs> Which is also why she's here. So Pacific people haven't just been standing around waiting, right? They haven't been waiting for the Auckland Blues to come and say, hey, we need you on our board, right? What has happened is Pacific communities have came with their own leaders and they turned to them still. And they've made new forms of leadership right here in New Zealand. Having been denied opportunity, access, resource, Pacific people have had to invent, produce, contest and hustle for their own. And in particular, what we've seen in Pacific communities is they've also had to find new ways to lead themselves. And I think particularly important is Pacific communities have had to share leadership with young people in New Zealand in a way that isn't always the case up in the Pacific. So much of this creativity and innovation has been because of necessity, because the cavalry wasn't coming in New Zealand. Some of it has been through sheer exuberance and talent. Others. Uh, other innovation and creativity has happened because Pacific people operate in spaces where no one sees them, right? where they're overlooked, unwitnessed or unseen. And my old teacher in one of his novels, Albert Went, wrote, the only way to be safe is to be invisible. Right? And so there's a Pacific world in that city that's next door to Auckland, the Polynesian city that others don't see. Right? I want to talk about five kinds of hotbeds of this, of how the rain has been seen to be coming by Pacific people and how the response of Pacific people to make their own future, in the phrase of uh, Peter Drucker, has been underway. Right. And so I'm just going to organise it through those kind of five places to look if we want to understand 
what our shared future will look like. Right. The first is through Pacific creativity. Right. Now, I think for me, the most powerful example that expresses this is actually a film that debuted in 2016, Three Wise Cousins. This is the 10th most successful film of all time in New Zealand. And not many people who weren't Pacific went to see it. Right. <laughs> in fact, many of you may not have even heard of it. Because something different, profoundly different about this movie happened. Right, normally when you're making a movie, you apply to Creative New Zealand, you get a grant to make a short movie, and you make three short movies, and then you write a script, and you go to script working, uh, script writing workshop, and then you apply for another big grant to make a feature film, and they appoint a mentor to you, and then you get Leon Narby to come in, and then the whole thing is sweet. Right. They didn't make that film like, this film like that. The um, director, Stallone Yuasa Vaiunga, um, and his sister, who was his producer, um, he, he saved up and bought his own camera. Right. He then wrote the script, and then he recruited the people to act in it, and then he was essentially the cameraman, the director, one of the producers, and then when the movie was done, he was the distributor and the promoter. Right. He actually produced an entirely different model for making a film. And this film, which he finally got, he convinced, or at least got a partnership out of the Hoyts chain, they showed it, and for several weeks it outperformed massive Hollywood blockbusters. I know the first few times we went to see it, it was sold out for days on end. Right. And so he made enough money with this film to finance his next film, which was released just a few months ago, a film called Ruthless and Hibiscus. Right. So... He is probably New Zealand's Tyler Perry, right? And then lots of you go, who? <laughs> because Tyler Perry is the African-American equivalent of this. Tyler Perry, basically, only his films are only consumed by African-American audiences, right? And he is a mass, he doesn't make his films in, in Hollywood, he makes them in Atlanta. His key star is himself in drag, as a character called Medea, right? And so that particular model is not unique, but the way that it was instantiated in New Zealand was entirely unprecedented and new. And now what's happening is people are going to Stallone. How could you not be a filmmaker if your parents call you Stallone, <laughs> right? Um, people are going to Stallone, old industry hands saying, how did you do it? Because he managed to do things like get it on United Airways, right, on the in-flight entertainment. He got it onto Netflix. He had strong hustle game, right? Now, if we look across the film industry, we will look, and I did a count, of the 10 highest grossing New Zealand films, eight of them are either by or about Māori and Pacific people. Right. So I think the exceptions are like the world's fastest Indian and foot-rot flats. Right. So this is where the creative industry sits. And if you think about our star voices now, we think of people like Taika Waititi, and Samoans will think of someone like KJ Upper, who's now starring as Archie. Um, you know, they probably wouldn't have picked that part. And we see this in music as well, right? From opera to R&B, right? Who would have thought Samoans would revolutionise opera in New Zealand? And they did, right? Most opera is done by subsidy in New Zealand through patronage, 
these three guys make a very healthy living and charge exorbitantly for corporate events through a reinvention of what opera could and should be. The injection of, well not should be, but what it could be. The injection of humour, of Pacific repertoire, and of character into this run. Now I know there's like the 10 tenors and this is not an unprecedented model, but in New Zealand, um, this is a first, right? R&B, most of the leading singers are Pacific people, and then whole genres like, uh, uh, particularly hip hop, have been mediated by Pacific people in New Zealand, right? And these are not just genres, they're industries. And I think particularly of um, the brothers who invented, uh, or who founded Death, uh, Dawn Raid Records, not Death Raid, <laughs> Dawn Raid Records, and part of that innovation was that they were not just producing music, but they were producing um, apparel and events, right? Which is a traditional kind of hip hop entrepreneur circle, but they were the first ones to do it in New Zealand. And then they sold on to Sony, right? Just like Dr. Dre and others overseas have sold commercially up, right? So they produced creative industries that employed many, many people in South Auckland and offer new opportunities for employment. Um, you know, obviously not huge ones, but really important and particularly high, potentially high value ones. And actually, tonight we're, well this afternoon, we're going to get to share in sort of the next generation of those. So I get to proudly introduce at the end of my talk a group, and this is them. Pacific people have also been um, innovative and creative transnationally. Right. So I know we're now accustomed to people saying that New Zealand is a Pacific nation. See, when I grew up in the 1980s, we were told New Zealand was an Asian nation. <laughs> and so we've lived through so many changes. And maybe on Saturday when um, Harry and whoever he's getting married to are getting married, we're not a, an Asian or a Pacific nation today. I suspect there's lots of people hearkening back to a, a European nation. But, you know, it's become so customary. I actually did a list of all the people that have called New Zealand a Pacific nation. And I ran out, I decided as soon as I filled my slide, I could stop, but I could keep going, right? So everyone is now calling New Zealand a Pacific Nation. If Murray McCulley and Phil Goff can do it, then anyone can do it, right? So everyone says it, but what does it mean to be a Pacific Nation? Right, and I guess um, this is about the rain again. You know, for instance, Fiji called out New Zealand saying that New Zealand isn't a Pacific nation and tried to have it removed from the Pacific Islands Forum. Right. And New Zealand, if it is a Pacific nation, was the only Pacific nation that opposed the 1.5% goal in Paris, right, or didn't openly support it. Right. So we haven't behaved like a Pacific nation. Um, the story around New Zealand's nuclear-free <laughs> policy as well. Um, I have a student that just finished a thesis which allows us to see that New Zealand's nuclear-free policy was not a friendly act towards the Pacific, but was actually an attempt to short-circuit a genuine nuclear-free and independent Pacific movement that Pacific people were, were progressing, right? Whereas New Zealand wanted to, to provide space for France and the US to remain powers in the Pacific. So climate change and other things have shown that New Zealand hasn't acted like a Pacific nation internationally. Right. But Pacific people living in New Zealand have. Right. I think the most dramatic example are the Pacific people in New Zealand. 
right? If you think of countries like Niue, Tokelau, the Cook Islands, all of them have many times the number of people that live in the homeland living here in New Zealand, right? The extreme example is, for instance, the Cook Islands, 12,000 Cook Islanders in the Cook Islands, 60,000 Cook Islanders in New Zealand, right? 1,200 Nguyen's in Niue, 20,000 Nguyen's in New Zealand, right? Um, similar story with the Tokelauans. It's getting close with Tuvaluans, right? So New Zealand is profoundly transnational in a Pacific sense because of Pacific people, right? We can look and realise that Auckland is the largest Nguyen, Tokelauan, um, Cook Island city in the world, right? It's also probably the largest Samoan city in the world and almost certainly the largest Tongan city in the world, right? And they recognise that with real things, right? I was looking today and I saw on Twitter that um, the new government is committed to 0.28% of its income in aid, right? And a majority of that's going to the Pacific, so it's probably going to be about 0.18% of New Zealand's aid to the Pacific. Now, pretty much every single Pacific family sends a far larger proportion of its income back to the Pacific, right? And things we measure and things we don't measure. And those countries depend on it, right? So Tonga is that little number, fourth in the world in dependency on remittances. So over a quarter of its economy is Tongans living overseas sending money, right? And the 2,000 Tongan workers who come on the RSE scheme sent, I think I saw figures for 2016, sent $14 million, something like, something extraordinary back to Tonga, right? And you guys complain about, you know, lending 100 bucks to your brother. So remittances are one of these examples. And I've often wondered, what if New Zealand acted like a Pacific nation in the same way that Pacific people act towards their, um, their Pacific homelands, right? What if we had a form of diplomacy that was built on the kinds of values, right? What lends a Pacific, what makes a Pacific family who don't have much money to begin with send $2,000 to build a church in their village, right? We can do the bad things. We can say, oh, well, it's guilt, it's status, they're after a title in that village. But at the end of the day, it is something akin to love, right? It's a something akin to real kinship and fellowship and compassion, right? So what if that was one of our values with which we operated in the world? I drew up a list of what Pacific values might look like that we built our diplomacy around? What if the Treaty of Waitangi was one of our founding documents when we dealt with other nations as well? Right. Whakaapapa, respect, right. Respecting other people's cultures and ways and being. Whanaungatanga, kinship, connecting through relatives. Alofa, love and compassion. Wantok, speaking other people's languages. Right. Tautua, service, kaitiakitanga, guardianship, right? What if these were the objectives, the values of New Zealand's government when we went overseas, right? Now, I know lots of you are thinking, well, where does security come into these things? Terrorism, transnational crime, right? Well, those things are all dealt with by Pacific nations. It can all fit 
And I was actually reflecting on efforts to do this. You might think this is unrealistic, but reaching deep into the past, I want to show you a couple of pictures from 1887. This is the Hawaiian Embassy from 1887. This is before Hawaii was occupied and the Hawaiian monarchy was overthrown in an act of war by the United States. Right. And the king actually formed, he appointed an ambassador and he sent his ambassador and diplomats to Samoa. Right. They went on board this ship, the Kaimiloa, and they went down to Apia and they were there for several months. And actually a, a former PhD student of mine has just published a book which tells this story in the most detail it's ever been told in. This is a, on this, in the middle is King Kalakaua, the Hawaiian king, just before the boat departed. Right. So Pacific nations have long conducted diplomacy with each other differently. And if you listen to what the Samoan Prime Minister has said about the Fijian Prime Minister and vice versa, you'll know they don't behave in the way that, for instance, Jacinda Ardern and uh, Donald Trump, well, not Donald, bad example, Jacinda Ardern and Malcolm Turnbull do. Right. So it is possible. We could act like a Pacific nation in the way that Pacific people teach us, right. with generosity and love and with values. Because Pacific people express their creativity and innovation through those means. And so one of the things we've seen is actually um, uh, creativity and innovation that is premised on relationships, love, and respect. Right. The power of faith and family. Right. We all know, or at least most of us will know, that Pacific people, when we look at statistical groupings by ethnicity, tend to be at the wrong end of most of our measures. Right. They tend to do very poorly in health, to the point where the life expectancy of Pacific people in New Zealand is actually lower than the retirement age. Right, something to really think about there. Um, they do very poorly in other wealth statistics. For instance, you know, nearly 20% of Pacific people have a net um, economic wealth of less than $1,000, right? Whereas the Pākehā median is $112,000. So we could look at all those statistics and if we had those of education in, we wouldn't have a very nice story to tell because life is tough for Pacific people in New Zealand, right? They weren't brought here to be millionaires. Pacific people, like for instance my father, were brought here to work in factories. And in fact, when my father was born in Samoa, there was no high school. So not only was he not educated, he never went to high school, but he could not have gone to high school because there wasn't one, right? And that was New Zealand's deliberate plan. So this is not an accident that has just sort of befallen Pacific people. It was, uh, it's the fruit of a long-standing policy that New Zealand had to undereducate Pacific people and then to have them do manual work. So I could tell a very sad story about that, and I do, because it's important that New Zealanders know this story. But there is a good story that goes with it, because life is tough, but for Pacific people, life is also good. Right. If you ask Pacific people, as the New Zealand Social Survey does, <coughs> How satisfied are they with their life? They outperform every other group in New Zealand, right? <laughs> By some margin. So Pacific people are more satisfied with their lives than anyone else, right? They're the least likely to be lonely in New Zealand. They're the least likely 
Um, they're, they're the most likely to be good neighbours to religious minorities and new migrants. And I think that being more satisfied with their lives tells us something, right? Pacific people know about being well. Even though abuse rates are high, overcrowding in Pacific homes is eight times the rate of Pākehā homes. <clears throat> the spiritual and family well-being of Pacific people bears real fruit, right? The relationships that Pacific people value clearly work. And I think if you ask Pacific families, most Pacific families, their chief investment strategy is not KiwiSaver, it's not you know, a second home because 80% of Pacific people do not have a first home. Um, what it is, is their family. That is the key Pacific investment strategy. It is their young people. And actually, if you ask Pacific families, they're down, many parents are down to the, the detail of which, parent, which kid they're going to live with when they retire, um, which one they think is not going to be useless, which one's going to look after them, <laughs> you know, which one married properly, has a good job. I think that's a great strategy, right? I think this is a really powerful thing that Pacific people believe and love their families so much they pour everything they have into it. And the families respond by doing things like handing over their paychecks, um, giving money when they're asked to by their parents, even when they don't live in the home. <clears throat> now I think there's something about us in New Zealand, if that is a strategy, investing in your, everything you have in your family that doesn't work in New Zealand, we probably have bigger questions to answer, right? Because it should, right? It really should. <clears throat> but will it get you a job, for instance? Will being skilled in offer, aroha, alofa, get you a job? And the answer is yes, right? Started off with that picture of Pacific people in caring roles, right? Now, as New Zealand ages, carers are going to be needed more, and having good carers. Yes, well, people, many Pacific people have lifetimes of training in caring for the elderly. They've had lifetimes in training with caring with, for children, right? Teaching, social work. These are industries that can't be outsourced and they can't be automated, right? So they are not bad places to be. They're future-proof in all sorts of key ways. But what about other economic benefits of an economy, a creativity are built around alofa. Right, I wanted to pick one object, because I have many of these, but I wanted to pick a powerful one that many of you have driven past but probably not known. And it's a monument in South Auckland. It's this building here. Right. Um, it's the Lisieli Tonga Auditorium on Favona Road, next to the um, Tonga Church, the Free Wesleyan Church, I think it is, there on Favona Road. This building is 2,000 square metres, it seats 1,500 people, this is opening day, right? Open last year, it won an architecture award, right? This is a multi-million dollar massive enterprise and it was built by 300 Tongan families, right? And when I say it was built by them, they raised money, they leveraged grants, their Tongan MP helped them do those things. But then when it came to constructing it, the families built it, right? They had engineers and skilled labor and um, tradesmen, but they built it, right? They recognized the community need and a community ambition, and they fulfilled it. It was literally built by whakaapapa, faith, and love, right? 
So now you'll notice it when, and the church was actually built in pretty much the same fashion as well. So when you, it's the first thing after the old Pacific Steel, which is now gone on Favona Road in Maungere. So it works, right? Pacific people have innovated, they've created. And they're doing it in a digital space. So I call this Pacific Digital. And I've had a wonder, bunch of wonderful students who've taught me a lot about this particular space. This is one of the flyers. One of my master's students did the world's biggest survey on Samoan Facebook use. And this is one of the challenges, right? Um, it's happening. We know the digital world is here. And we know that it presented all sorts of opportunities, but actually most of those opportunities have been foreclosed. Right. So what we've seen is actually the internet is dominated just by a few multinational companies that most of us exist within most of our time online. Right. And actually the possibilities that many of us were just inspired by that we would have, um, yeah, we'd obliterate distance and that all of a sudden being small wouldn't matter because of scale would disappear in the virtual world. We actually decide, we've found that that's not true, right? Distance has disappeared to some extent, but it's mediated by cost. Scale matters because Facebook doesn't care about small markets and neither does Google or Alibaba, right? So even in cyberspace, there's segregation, there's inequality, um, and there's accessibility issues. Right? So when you ask what is the Samoan Facebook, it's Facebook. <laughs> right. But Samoans use it differently. So one of the things we discovered is that Samoans know nearly three quarters of the people they're friends with on Facebook. They physically know them in the offline world. Right. But I think more important and more revealing of the way Pacific people use um, Facebook is that you know, two-thirds of the people Samoans are friends with on Facebook are their relatives. <laughs> Which is not the case. Probably Samoans are going, of course. <laughs> That's not the case with the way most people use Facebook. Right. So there's a really different um, way to which this has happened. What's concerning for me is that the possibilities being foreclosed and there was one example I talk about it in the book. About, there was a, a website called The Carver Bowl, founded by a Tongan entrepreneur, that predates um, Facebook. And that almost made it to the monetizable stage. Right? But Taholo Kami, who was found, the founder of that, just got fed up one day and he shut the whole thing down and walked away. <laughs> so just before these companies started to be monetizable, as they say. So they're all foreign owned. They have no interest in the Pacific. Um, so rather than being navigators and explorers on this vast digital ocean, Pacific people have ended up mostly as passengers. Right. They're likely to be passengers in the economy, digital economy too, unless we do something to empower young people to create and innovate in these spaces. Because Facebook and Google aren't going to do it. There's nothing in it for them. Right. What can we do? Well, we can monetize relationships. And every Pacific person who's tried to sell their family Amway knows exactly what that looks like, right? We can use the, um, the internet, as has been done with their church, they use the internet to mobilize. So this is my family Facebook page. I'll quickly, I didn't want to use anyone else's because I'll get in trouble. We can also use services. So one indigenous, meaning New Zealand developed online product 
is this one, which was previously Digicel Money and is now ClickX. So ClickX can get $300 to Tonga for about $7. The major international player, which is Western Union, will charge you over 30 Right. So we're already doing some sort of innovation like this. So we can connect people, we can transfer money, and we can potentially, and I think this is the most exciting thing, when you live in a segregated Auckland like Pacific people do, the big business challenge is the people around you are also poor. Right. So how can you connect to wealthy markets who have money <laughs> to give you <laughs> for your product? Well, the internet is one of those ways. Right. Yeah. So we can produce Pacific markets. And I think Pacific people have been really innovative in this. Right. The hustle game is strong. I think most obviously Pacific people an alliance with the Labour Party, literally invented the market in New Zealand. Right, the Otara market that is now the market you find in Takapuna and in Avondale and in Mangere and the night markets, that is a Pacific invention. Right, to use a car park um, and sell goods for local people at very low overheads. Right. Now if we take that even to the next step, you get a place which is very special to many of us in this room, a place called Otahu. Right. Otahu is one of these truly innovative markets. Right. What we see in Otahu is the emergence of entirely new forms of commerce and new sort of um, consumer relationships. So for instance, you can of course go get things you would never buy, be able to buy anywhere else but maybe in Mangere, Otara and Otahu. Right. Um, you see South Asian Southeast Asian, East Asian, and Pacific stores pretty much fill the main street of Otahu. Now, most main streets are dying, right? Otahu is pretty much mostly full, right? Um, you see transnational Pacific chains. Now, many of you know the McDonald's of this world, but in Otahu, they have two chains that have come from the Pacific to New Zealand. One is Pinatis, and the other one is Big Bear, right? So these are two chains that people know from Fiji, Sahamoa, that are in Otahu. And then, of course, you see the nasty things, the over-presence um, of payday lenders, of pawnbrokers, instant finance, Aotea finance, cash converters, they're all there in Otahu, right? Otahu at least still has a bank. Many South Auckland shopping districts don't have a single retail bank, right? They have Kiwi Bank and maybe a credit union, and they might have 10, 15, 20 predatory lenders, right? So in places like Otahu, Pacific people have cut out the middle person and are basically trading with China and Asian producers directly. So these fabrics are produced in China for New Zealand markets. And in a book I describe how Tauvala have been produced for, um, essentially for Tongans in Otahu, which seems to be the first place it turned up. Right, so industrial production in China has been driven by Pacific consumers and entrepreneurs. Right. So this is the future, right? And if you think of all the shops, all the chains in, in Otahu, the one that shut down wasn't Pinatis, it wasn't Big Bear, it wasn't the, one of the three Cambodian bakeries. No, what shut down in Otahu was Carl's Jr. Right. <laughs> so Carl's Jr. couldn't hack the pace in Otahu. There's something there we all need to take a deep lesson from. So Pacific people see the future, they live the future, they are the future, 
and they know the future. I know that lots of stuff has been going on here about the future of work, where they say things like, oh, jobs are going to go because they're automated. Well, as a family that was sustained by Fisher and Paykel for 44 years, which closed down two years ago, South Auckland knows this stuff. Right. This is not news. The move to the service industry will go look at who serves you at, at the malls you work at. That's already happened. Pacific people know your future before you do. Right. You just need to, they may not know they know it, but they do. Right. They were the pioneers of post-war social housing. They were the pioneers of the industrial south and East Tamaki and Penrose. Right. Pacific people were the first big group, along with Māori, to leave New Zealand to go to Australia and give them a backline in the Wallabies. <laughs> yeah. And now I think the last point around the way a new market Pacific people have formed is around this particular one, which is surprising to everyone but Tongans, which is proportionately the largest Pacific urban area in New Zealand is now Oamaru, right? which has, by popular accounts, we'll know from the census if, if the popular accounts are true, around two and a half to 3,000 Pacific people in an urban area of 12. Right. The churches are now being taken over <laughs> or handed over to Tongan. So this is the um, Tonga Havia, who's a lay preacher at the Oamaru Tongan Methodist Parish. That's one of two Tongan parishes that use this building that was built in 1875. One report online said that the 95%, and this is true to stereotype, 95% of the Oamaru Old Boys Rugby Club are Tongan. Um, so it's happening. So used to be Pacific people looked across the ditch, now they're looking to the South Island because they've discovered something that we all know but none of us ever do anything about and that's it's half the cost of living in Oamaru as it is in Auckland. Right? $200 a week won't get you anything in New Zealand, in Auckland. It will, buy, it will rent you a house in Oamaru. $200,000 will buy you a house in Oamaru. And $250,000 will buy you a nice house. And the minimum wage is the same up here as down there. And many of you will know there's a reason Tongans moved to Amaru, And that is there's a meatworks. So you can do the same minimum wage job in Amaru and Auckland and just have a better life. Right. So this is it. We're living in an island time. A Pacific future that Pacific people have been living in for some time because the rain has been coming from manua. Right. It's a future that has already happened, in Drucker's phrase, and it will just slowly work its way through New Zealand. Right. Now, New Zealand has response, responded to this, right? I think the New Zealand public has responded wisely by electing different leaders that look a lot more like our nation. Right. But the other response New Zealand has strikes me as really odd, right? Because a strange thing happens when New Zealanders decide they need to innovate they turn straight away to the United States and Europe. Right. So what we call innovation in New Zealand is actually mostly transplantation, adoption, adaption. Right. It's a remarkable thing that we would look for answers to our problems in places which have problems that are so severe they look completely unlike our own. Right. Yet this is what we do. We look to America for answers. Really? America? Right. I get people who would rather travel, these are policy people who would rather travel to see Hamilton in New York than travel to Hamilton to find answers, or even closer to home, to Otara, to Otahu, to Mangere, right? 
we see these sort of trends, like one right now is co-design. How about mahi ngātahi, right? How about all the other concepts for collaboration that are already present right here in Auckland, right? Most New Zealanders actually make quite lousy Americans, right? The ones that do, we're probably glad they're in America. But actually, New Zealanders are the best in the world at being Pākehā, Māori, Pacifica, right? I even had this encounter where someone said, oh, you know, well, you guys in South Auckland should look at this model of Aboriginal healthcare. And it kind of annoyed me. <laughs> so I actually went and looked up the model, and right there on the webpage, they said it was based on one in South Auckland. <laughs> and that's what this, these innovations are like. This is the substance of these innovations, right? And when innovation comes into New Zealand, it comes right on top of Pacific people's heads. And I think particularly of charter schools. Right, if char charter schools were such a great idea, why aren't they trying them in Devonport, right, in Rimuera, right? So, so I want those schools to succeed because they're full of Māori and Pacific kids, but you can't tell me they were designed and they were brought here for the good of Māori and Pacific people, right? So this is, and I just wanted to finish on this, was that the latest example of this is well-being. Right now, well, now the Treasury wants to tell us about well-being. Now, if there's anyone I don't want to hear about well-being from, it's the Treasury. <laughs> right? Now, I want to hear from those people who are living a hard life in South Auckland and are still happy and satisfied with their lives. I want to hear from the people who have been talking about um, soifua, maroroina for decades. I want to hear about the people who know well-being and what it means. I don't want to hear about people who went on a conference trip to New York or London and come back and think they've discovered something, right? I was going to say, quote something about prophets in their own land, but there we go. So I think, what does this Pacific future look like? Well, I, as you can see, I'm really inspired by this Pacific future, but one of my teachers said the best way um, is not to tell, but to show. So I'd like to hand over to this group, this group of beautiful young people here. Um, a group that meet from eight South Auckland, I think it might be nine South Auckland schools right now, leaders from these schools who came together last year and produced Southside Rice are coming together this year to produce Heads Held High, which will be running, I think, in June um, at Māngere Arts Centre. Um, so we are um, the Black Friars and we are brought to you by South Auckland and I say that with power, strength and authority and I say that with pride as well. Um, th this is a piece that we performed in our show that we did last year called Southside Rise. And even though the show has finished, Southside is still rising. <laughs>
back at the class, never feeling like a measurer. Girls around me have ambition and I go by on chance of love. I've never been much good in numbers, never liked to read or write. Never seemed like I could make a brown girl in a sea of white. And though the odds are stacked against me, and the stats say I'm destined to fall, but my dreams are in my sights now. This one last time I give my all. Make a change, make a choice. Raise your hands and raise your voice. Raise the roof of a system that is never understood. What it's like to be right in the wrong. Raise the bar, raise the stakes. Take a risk, whatever it takes. Raise the roof. Raise the roof. I feel the rugby dreams of my father never gave school a second thought. I played my way through mind and body, never cared what I was taught. But I guess I picked too early, one bad season, one bad fall. With no plan B to tie me over, I hit rock bottom, lost it all. I see my path laid out before me, carved out in blood and tears. I take the chance and hope I make it, defy the odds and face my fears. Make a change, make a choice. Raise your hands and raise your voice. Raise the roof of a system that's never understood. Raise the roof. What it's like to be right in the wrong. Raise the bomb. Raise the stakes. Take a risk, whatever it takes. Raise the roof. Raise the roof. to a podcast from the 2018 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes and SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.